Hi, my name's Tom Jennings, this is the 24 Frames cast. And before I begin, I just want to thank everyone who emailed me about the last show. Um, really kind of encouraging to hear all the feedback I've been getting. Um, just to address one thing, um, a lot of people have asked me, um, basically, could they have more shows on a more regular basis? And this is something I will be addressing, really, so hopefully within kind of about time frame now, about once every three weeks, there should be a new show out there. Um, also, to let you know about the blog at 24framescast.blogspot.com, um, I'm putting posts up there almost every other day now and I'm um, getting quite a lot of views and stuff like that so if you want to head over there there's lots more content there um, so anyway I'm going to get on with it now and this is going to be a new close-up episode on the documentary Gimme Shelter I hope you enjoy it okay, are you ready? for the first time in three years the greatest rock and roll band in the world the Rolling Stones the Rolling Stones we're going to have a look at you. We're going to see how beautiful you are. Woo! All right. Oh, New York City, you talk a lot. Let's have a look at you. Let's have a look at New York City. Nine years ago, whilst on holiday in Spain, I took a break from lounging around the pool and went back to the room to pick up some more cigarettes. Upon switching on the television, I saw the two World Trade Centers on fire. I, like the rest of the world, sat in stunned silence, seeing the looping footage of the two planes crashing into the buildings. Most profoundly for me was a realisation that for the first time in my life, I was actually witnessing history. The world had literally changed before my eyes. In the 1970 documentary Give Me Shelter, such a moment occurs. A fighter ups during a Rolling Stones concert at the Altamont Speedway, during which a man pulls a gun and is subsequently stabbed to death by a Hells Angel. And this is not just a tragic accident in the conventional sense of a human being losing their life. It is also the end of an ideal, the end of an era. Mercifully for us, three documentary filmmakers, David and Albert Mansells and Charlotte Zerin, captured the event for eternity. The documentary genre is one that often leads to debate as to what level of artifice has been used to create the film. I am continually annoyed by detractors of Michael Moore's films who pull apart his work claiming that he has omitted certain facts and scenes in order to exploit and manipulate the viewer. In particular during his 1987 film Roger and Me, during which he apparently tries to interview General Motors' Roger Smith only to be knocked back time and time again, only Moore had actually interviewed Smith and had left out the interview from the film. Accusations of fakery were abound and still are to this day. However, for anyone who has seen the film they will know it is not about the interview itself. It's about the effect of what happens to a town when its industrial heart is ripped out. Critics of Moore are for me based on the fact that people just don't like him because to question his style ignores the simple fact that all documentaries are crafted to form a narrative. The King of Kong, a fistful of courses, is universally loved. It does not even remotely tell the truth of what happened between Steve Weeby and Billy Mitchell. The pair had battled against each other several times, though clearly the film says the complete opposite happened. However, rather than chastise the film, this fact is often overlooked or actually dismissed entirely because of the engaging narrative and heartwarming story it tells. Why therefore is it okay for one filmmaker and not the other? The truth is, documentaries lie through the language of cinema. 
A simple edit here in the context of a scene can be completely changed, forcing us to side with what the director wants us to think. It's why when watching documentaries I'm often aware of the importance not to simply take what I'm seeing as being the gospel truth. Indeed, documentary can be a fairly misleading term due to the subjectivity that is used in, in its creation. Various documentary movements have arisen over the years, and before talking about Give Me Shelter in more detail, I feel it's important to talk about direct cinema movement, especially in relation to my own thoughts on documentary film and what I have just said. Much like the cinema verite movement, direct cinema was about capturing reality and representing it in the most truthful way possible. It is, in my mind, an almost impossible goal to achieve, but crucially, it does provide an ethos for us to assess the effectiveness of directors who consider themselves as practitioners. It's a movement that could have only come about because of technology. The invention of lightweight camera and sound recording kits meant that filmmakers could roam where they pleased. It stands to reason the films made in the style have a journalistic quality to them, and an example being Primary, directed by Richard Laycock and D.A. Pennebaker, whom of course were assisted by the great Sir Ridley Scott. It chronicles the 1960 documentary party election between John F. Kennedy and Hubert Humphrey, and is well worth seeking out, especially for its candid portrait of John Kennedy. Often recognised as the first documentary feature film, Salesman from 1968, directed by Albert and David Mersels, is for the record also my favourite documentary of all time. It follows a group of Bible salesmen around America, chronicling their feelings and thoughts on what they do. It is, pardon the pun, an enlightening film where the world of commerce and religion collide. The people who they are selling the Bibles to can for the most part neither afford or indeed require them, and those doing the selling are often deeply conflicted as the ethics of the trade. It's a film that is still relevant today and almost universal of its exploration of the personal impact capitalism exerts on those on its front line. In the US there is an excellent Criterion edition of the film, and for Region 2 I can also recommend the Masters of Cinema release. KFRC, this is Frank Terry, and let me repeat, the Rolling Stones free concert is going to be on tomorrow at the Altamont Speedway. Apparently, it's one of the most difficult things in the world to give a free concert. You know, which, which it sets example to the rest of America as to how one can behave in large gatherings. The Rolling Stones are arguably the greatest rock and roll band the world has ever seen. Although their celebrity may not be as great now, it was a different case in the 1960s. The Rolling Stones, the Beatles and Elvis Presley were all part of a wider cultural and sociological change that had swept through the youth of the world over. The baby boom of the 40s and 50s had produced a generation who wanted to be different from what had gone before, often embracing radical politics and rejecting the established norms. A rapid counterculture movement grew. 
Of course now it's easy to miss some of the more lofty aims of the various groups, indeed we often mocked the whole hippie movement as being a bit crap. At the time however, there was a real collective belief that the world could be changed and more peaceful, harmonious society created. This of course was all against the backdrop of one of the most violent and potentially destructive phases in human history. The Vietnam War was building in scale month by month, and of course the Cold War had sparked an arms race with either side amassing vast arsenals, ready for a war that would never come. American youth culture had something to rally against, and indeed Mutica has been a unifying force in such times. The Rolling Stones were one of those bands, sex, drugs and rock and roll were the stable of the Stones' life, with Mick Jagger being sex symbol to the girls, an idealised version of masculinity to the boys. Originally the band approached the Marcel's brother to make a film about their latest tour. It was the first time the band had been on tour for a number of years, and it wasn't the first time either the Marcel's brother had made a film about a band, having previously worked with the Beatles, or indeed the first time the Rolling Stones had ever been filmed. The financing for the film was provided by the band, and by the Marcel's brothers, who had little direction from the Stones, apart from Mick claiming that he didn't want any of that Penna Baker shit. It's an interesting aspect of documentaries, as very often the original intention of the filmmakers differs greatly from the final product. Capturing the Freedmans originally started off life as a documentary about clowns in New York before taking such a radical different direction after the story behind the Freedmans family came to light. Gimme Shelter very much evolved in the editing room and this is reflected in the film's loose narrative style. On the one hand we have the band as performers, with Mick whipping the crowd into a frenzy, pouncing and dancing around. On the other we have the private side of the band, sitting around listening to their music and drinking alcohol. And of course there is the business side. Lawyers and managers are seen arranging the finer points of the concert in their opulent offices with leather upholstery. It's a world apart from the cheap hotel rooms and drinking whiskey neat from bottle that we see the band doing. I've heard one description of the film say it's a film about processes. The process of making an album, the process of putting on a concert, and the process of actually making a film. On paper therefore, the film may seem a little disjointed, without a clear central narrative direction. But the director uses advice that I have until this point never seen before that binds the film together. We frequently cut back to the band watching the documentary in a steam deck. The reactions of them are normally limited to observations by Mick that range from playful laughter to shock at what later occurs. What fascinates me though is the way in which they are seeing themselves as we the audience do, yet they are the subjects of the film. The way in which the film often cuts directly from the scene to the editing room with the band watching too makes me feel a bit like suddenly seeing in a normal film a shot of the film being made complete with cast and crew all together in the frame. The film's opening title actually appears on the Steam Deck screen first before the actual film cuts into the title. It's really hard to see this together, isn't it? It'll take time. What? Eight weeks. Eight weeks. You think you can do it that quick? This gives us a freedom. All you guys watching us. We may only be on you for a minute. Then go to almost anything. It's quite a unique way of jumping in and out and actually heightened the reality of it to me, despite so clearly drawing to the attention to the fact we are watching a film. In a way, I don't question what I was seeing so much in terms of artifice, which was always especially prevalent during the scenes showing the crowd leading up to the ultimate concert. I found myself looking at the people at the concert like living, breathing stereotypes. The stoned out hippies, the topless acid casualties with a strange mix of political activists trying to recruit people to the causes. I've seen these types of people before in fictional films, and it's hard to often separate that image from fact. In this respect, Gimme Shelter did it truly feel like a window to another world, and one that feels utterly insane to boot. Many of the shots linger long on individuals in some kind of ludicrous moment. A dog sitting patiently whilst a couple make out, 
and one man rambling incoherently at the cameraman who simply looks on with a bemused expression on his face. I don't think Gimme Shelter is particularly kind on the people who attend the concert, which I feel is enforced from the film's opening. One of the first things we hear is one of the bikers explaining the importance and meaning of a Hells Angels motorcycle. The, the idea of them defending them seems quite justified, and as the film progresses through the day, the crowd seem more and more out of control on drugs and alcohol, making violence seem all the more likely. That was Sam Cutler, one of the organizers of the Altamont Free Concert. I think we've got one of the Hells Angels on the line, Sonny Barger. Have I got that right, Sonny? Yeah. Okay, what's up? I didn't go there to police nothing, man. I ain't no cop. I ain't never gonna ever pretend to be a cop. And this Mick Jagger, like, put it all on the angels, man. Like, he used us for dupes, man. You know, and as far as I'm concerned, we were the biggest suckers for that idiot that I can ever see. And you know what? They told me if I could sit on the edge of the stage so nobody would climb over me, you know, I could drink beer until the show was over. And that's what I went there to do. But you know what? When they started messing over our bikes, they started it. I don't know if you think we pay $50 for them things or steal them or pay a lot for them or what. Ain't nobody going to kick my motorcycle. And they might think because they're in a crowd of 300,000 people that they can do it and get away with it. But when you're standing there looking at something that's your life and everything you got is invested in that thing and you love that thing better than you love anything in the world and you see a guy kick it, you know who he is. You're going to get him. And you know what? They got got. I am not no peace creep by any sense of the word. And you can call them people flower children and this and that. Some of them people was loaded on some drugs that it's just too bad we wasn't loaded on because they come running off of the hill yelling, hey, you know, and jump on somebody. And it wasn't even always jumping on angels. But when they jumped on an angel, they got hurt. Of course, you could justifiably question the sense in asking Hell's Angels to police such an event, but the blame for this lies with the band's management, not them. It's important to give some kind of context to why the Hell's Angels were asked to police the event, because by doing so I feel it actually forces us to investigate the intentions of the filmmakers further. The band had played a similar type of concert in Hyde Park in England, at which Hell's Angels had been asked to provide security. The event passed off peacefully, although the difference between British Hell's Angels and their American counterparts was massive it was felt they could be used in a similar capacity for the Altamont event. There had been other events in the San Francisco Bay area that had been attended by large numbers of Hells Angels and again also passed off without any incident. It is therefore not surprising that they were asked to attend again. Indeed with this knowledge in mind I rather feel the film leaves Mick and Co a little high and dry. The film does not give them or their management the chance to respond to any of the accusations made or indeed give a counter to the situation the viewer sees. Of course, direct interviews and prompting are very much not part of how the Marcells brothers work, but when the decision is made not to include such important information that would have changed the context of the film so dramatically, you do have to wonder why. There is throughout the scenes at Altmore, leading up to the concert, a building sense of menace and watching the film there is a tangible sense that the situation is beginning to get out of control. From the moment the Hells Angels arrive, the crowd is already way out of control. During Jeff and the Aeroplane's performance, people try to get on stage, are beaten up, Paul cues and fists fly, leading to the band's lead singer being knocked out. Surely at this time warning bells should have been ringing, it's staggering the concert's allowed to continue. When we do cut back to the band watching the footage, I can't help think the filmmakers are suggesting that this has unfolded as a result of them, and most interesting I believe Mick can be seen as the cause of the events. Although technically about the Rolling Stones, 
This is very much a study of Mick Jacket. The Marcells brother were, by their own admission, fascinated by him. Albert Marcells even embraced the same style of long scarf we see Mick wearing in the film. Mick at the time was only just becoming the Mick Jagger we know him today in terms of performance styles, and the brothers recognised the fact that it was very much Mick who was the face of the band and cultural icon to be. The concert footage at the Madison Square Garden almost constantly focuses on him dancing around the stage. Mick engages with the audience in between songs who clearly idolise him, complete with over-enthusiastic fans running towards him to touch him. We could call him a blatant exhibitionist. His constant pouting and strutting draw all the attention away from the band onto him. And in truth, he's just doing what all good front men do. Clearly, Mick is the centre of attention offstage too, as we see in one press conference during which all the questions are directed towards him, and he's clearly enjoying the experience. <laughs> are you any more satisfied now as far as you're <laughs> Do you, mean, do, you mean, do you mean sexually or, or philosophically? Both. Uh, yeah, we're more satisfied now sexually. Uh, How about philosophically and financially? Financially dissatisfied, uh, you know, uh, sexually satisfied, philosophically trying. <laughs> Rubbish. There's a question here on the right. Uh, I read in one of the papers that you'll be giving a free concert in San Francisco. Uh, we are doing a free concert in San Francisco when? on December 6th. And uh, uh, the location is not Golden Gate Park, unfortunately, but it's somewhere adjacent to it, which is a bit larger. It's, it's creating a sort of uh, microcosmic society, you know, which it, which it sets examples to the rest of America as to how one can behave in large gatherings. I, however, see Mick in the film as a kind of semi-tragic figure, a Pied Piper for a generation who led them absolutely nowhere. Offstage, there is nothing particularly offensive about Mick. There's no direct interviews with him or any of the band who instead encourage us to watch him and draw our own conclusions. Clearly, Mick identifies with those in the audience. He refers to them as brothers and sisters, and it's fairly safe to say if he wasn't on stage, he'd be in the crowd with them. However, it becomes more and more apparent during the film how far removed Mick's idealism is from reality. The Hells Angels and Hippies are the two most iconic counterculture sets, yet they clash violently almost immediately. As soon as the band arrive at the concert, Mick is almost immediately punched. The incident happens so quickly we almost miss it, and it appears utterly motiveless. Mick smiles and carries on walking, but the scene is also very awkward to see and feed into the growing sense of unease that builds throughout the film. There are also elements of humour in the film, however. In one continual shot, Tina Turner gives a sexually charged performance, playfully moving her hand up and down the microphone stand. We then cut to Mick, who rather glibly states, it's nice to have a chick occasionally. Knowing what we know about Mick, it's probably quite likely he isn't referring to Tina's singing voice, and indeed there's a slight air of jealousy given how captivating her performance is. The camera does love Mick during the pre-ultimate scenes, but I do feel this dynamic changes over the course of the running time. When the Stones do come on stage, clearly the situation spirals out of control. Fights break out and songs are interrupted, yet Mick still tries to keep the concert going. But why does he do this when quite obviously things are escalating at an alarming rate? I believe it's more Mick's naivety that prevents him from pulling the plug. This wasn't the mid-60s, it was the 70s, and the world had moved on. No amount of protest has ended the Vietnam. Nuclear weapons were still being made, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X and Robert Kennedy had all been shot and racially the country was divided as ever. The sexual and cultural revolution of which the Rolling Stones were part of had now become mainstream. Films like Easy Rider and Bonnie and Clyde had shunted aside big budget studio films and although radically different from what had gone before they were now becoming the stable of people's cultural diet. 
Mick's standing on stage pleading to his brothers and sisters to calm down. In unity and listening to the music is falling on deaf ears of people who no longer with the same outlook on life as before. In short, the world had moved on and Mick is still living in the past. what's going on I just know that every time we get to a number something happens I don't know what's going on who's doing what it's just a scuffle all I can ask you San Francisco is like the whole thing like this could be the most beautiful evening we've had for this winter you know and we've really you know why why don't let's get up man come on let's get it together I can't do any more than just ask you to beg you just to keep it together. You can do it. It's within your power. Everyone, everyone, hell's angels, everybody. Let's just keep ourselves together. You know, if we if we are all one, let's show we're all one. One thing. Stylistically, the film may appear a little subdued by today's standards. Many of the shots linger far longer than we were perhaps accustomed to. There are no graphics and we see entire songs performed by the band in quite close-up shots with only occasional cut to the crowd. Indeed, during the ultimate concert, there's almost no sense of scale when the Stones perform, which is quite common of concert footage from the time. Gimme Shout does not use any stock footage. There are no direct interviews with the band. The lack of interviews is very much part of the direct cinema style because they are so subjective. We are encouraged, therefore, to simply judge what we see free from the participants having a direct voice with which to offer any greater insight into what happened other than what is produced in the moment. In a way, I want to hear more on what the bands think about what happened, but I'm also quite content just to let them react to it. After all, what could they really say that we wouldn't already think? The band aren't monsters, and are also very deeply upset by what happened. 
It's why I think this direct cinema style can be quite an acquired taste. You have to actively participate in the film far more than usual. It's a bit like comparing the viewing experience of watching something like Armageddon and Andrei Tartakovsky's Stalker, one of which will hurt the eyes and ears, while the other will hurt the brain. What I also find quite interesting is how throughout the film, we often see the filmmakers and hear them speaking or being spoken to. No attempt is made to make them invisible, and while present they are in no way actually play an active part in guiding the direction of film during scenes. David Maysells actually does become involved, only when asked to by Mick, and in this instant is simply to assist the Steinbeck. In one scene, the band sit around listening to a recording of Wild Horses. The camera remains fixed on Charlie Watts, who looks up and stares directly into it. Perhaps instinctively as a filmmaker, you would look away, even cut the scene from the film entirely. Charlie looks into the lens and looks away and then looks back, all whilst the camera remains on him. It draws attention to the fact that he is being filmed and that the camera wants him to know that he is being filmed, but also breaks the fourth wall in how common convention dictates that this kind of direct referencing of the camera is normally considered a mistake. On the day of the Ultimate Concert, there were actually four deaths and one birth, two hit and runs, a drowning, and of course the most famous, that of Meredith Hunter. Hunter had gone to the concert with girlfriend Patty Braderhoff, and the pair had been consuming alcohol and drugs all day, and had slowly moved down to the front of the stage to watch the Stones. You could be forgiven for thinking that when watching the film, that the band had only played a few songs before the incident occurred. It was in fact about ten songs in, and the band did complete an entire set, unaware Hunter had died. Several songs have been interrupted by fighting between the crowd and the Hells Angels, even after repeated calls to calm down by the band. Hells Angel Alan Parso produced a knife stabbing Hunter three times in the neck and back. Hunter would bleed to death whilst Braderhoff watched on. It would be wrong of me to say I'm glad the event was captured on film, however I do feel that from a cultural perspective it was important that we saw what happened. Throughout Give Me Shelter we cut back to the band watching the footage very much like they are watching along with us. However. As soon as this killing happens, there is a huge change in perspective. On first viewings, and indeed in popular law, we assume that Hunter was simply murdered. Because he was black, we also perhaps assume there was a racial motive as well. However, the fact of the matter was that Hunter produced a gun. Parcel was also cleared of murder in court with the verdict ruling that he'd acted in self-defence. Incidentally, the footage was used during the trial as evidence in his acquittal, and joins the likes of the Thin Blue Line in actively playing a role in the American justice system. Why Hunter was carrying a gun has never been established. It has been suggested he was going to try and shoot members of the band, but the fact he was carrying a gun very much flies in the face of all known preconceptions about hippie culture in general. Mixed generation of free love and peaceful ideology effectively disappears before his very eyes. Crucially, the film doesn't delve into the killing itself and its reasoning, it simply shows it. Indeed, for a documentary so famous for its one scene, the killing and aftermath take up only a few minutes of screen time, and I know many people who have watched the film have been quite surprised that the incident does not feature more heavily. Certainly the film's marketing was directly referenced. Of course it's not the first time film marketing has been misleading, but it may come as a surprise to first time viewers we only get to ultimate after 45 minutes of material that is almost completely unrelated to the murder. Meredith Hunter drew the pistol first and Mick in disbelief asked David Mersell to rewind the footage. It's not clear whether Hunter fired a shot, although there is a silhouette against girlfriend Braderhoff's dress which would suggest that he was able to fire at least once. In the film's most harrowing scenes, we see Braderhoff being comforted by a friend, clearly in disbelief that Hunter was dead. And look, we're splitting, you know, if those cats cut, excuse people. 
We are splitting, man, if those cats don't stop beating everybody up inside. I want them out of the way, man. I don't like you. Hey, people. Hey, people. Come on, let's be cruel. People, please. There's no reason to hassle anybody. Please don't be made of if you move back and sit down, we can continue, and we will continue. Can you roll back on that, David? Here's the angel right there with a the knife. Where's the gun? I'll roll it back so you'll see it against the girl's crocheted dress. Oh, it's there, isn't it? So hard. Of course, it would be wrong of us to expect Mick to say something profound given what he's seen. I doubt very much anyone could, but as he gets up walking away, something quite strange happens. We've all seen the 400 blows with its final shot of Anton looking into the camera as it frame phrases. It's a moment whereby the world is filled with limitless potential and simultaneous peril. As Mick walks out, the camera freezes and zooms in in exactly the same way, mirroring the final shot of the 400 blows. I cannot believe that directors were not referencing the film, and it seems odd in a way that a documentary should directly homage a fictional film so blatantly. However, the effect is almost exactly the same. Mick stares into the camera in a now iconic image. The poster boy for a generation is now the unwitting head of its demise. I honestly don't know what culpability, if any, we are encouraged to levy against Mick at all. By nature, direct cinema is objective in nature, but to end with such a subjective shot would show that the filmmakers are singling him out. Is he to blame for what happened? The Hells Angels contest it was Mick directly who said they could drink beer all day as long as no one got on stage. In all likelihood, it wasn't Mick who called them, and we see during the negotiations of the concert, it was not Mick who chose the venue also. Is it some kind of damning indictment on celebrity culture and its influence? Celebrity is not a new concept, although it has reached a, perhaps a pinnacle of idiocy at present. As much as we love a celebrity, we love ripping them to shreds. They make convenient scapegoats of the world in which we live. Is, it, is the film mocking Mick with these cries for his brothers and sisters, even though he's clearly far removed away from them with his army of security and financial prosperity? It would be easy to accuse the band, and most important Mick, for what happened, which would also be wholly unjustified. The final shot of Gimme Shelter draws a line under an era. The ultimate concert was a death note for the 60s and the idea that was propagated throughout it. It was just a matter of coincidence that Gimme Shelter captured the moment it does. With or without Altamont, the hippie movement and its ideals of the 60s would have died anyway, regardless of Meredith Hunter being killed. Instead, the killing and its filming were an accident. The filmmakers did not know they'd captured it until days after when looking through rushes, and the intention of the film was to make a tour film all along. Although Charlotte Zarin is credited as director, she was in fact the film's editor, indicating perhaps how much she was involved with shaping the film and actually giving it some direction. Gimme Shelter does offer a nice easy conclusion. It dispenses with top-down solution and really leads to the question, what is the film really about? 
I find it a hard question to answer, indeed Phil, that is trying to answer it. You would find yourself running around in circles. We are so used to having narratives spoon-fed to us that when they are not there, we become often frustrated that an adequate conclusion is not provided. Much of what happens in the world is objective and does not have a neat conclusion, or indeed, we retrospectively attach meaning and significance to events. Part of the escapist appeal of film is coming in credit of a clear idea of what to think and feel about what happened. Documentaries are no different in this respect. They tell tightly controlled narrative arcs that have a clear beginning, middle and end. And when they do not, as such in the case of Gimme Shelter, the viewer is forced to cross a line of interpretation that can at first be quite daunting, but in my mind is infinitely more intellectually rewarding. Every time I see the film it makes me feel something different. Strangely I've never felt a great deal of sympathy for Meredith Hunter. I don't think he deserved to die, but he did pull a gun, which he may have had at all intentions of using. Similarly, I don't think Alan Perso is any kind of hero either. Instead I kind of felt for Mick in the film, especially in light of what has become since. He's now of course Sir Mick, and is often derided by Britain's press as a kind of relic. I recall four years ago when a solo album was savaged by the Sun newspaper, who gave a sarcastic tally of how many units had been sold. It was nothing more than cheap journalism at the expense of someone who was once the face of all that great music stood for. The reaction to the film was not at first particularly positive. The band too were very wary of it. Mick would not give clearance until the invitation of director David Camel, who he worked with on performance, who was able to convince him it was worth releasing. Eventually making its debut at Cannes in 1971, the film has gone on to become the most celebrated documentaries of all time. I personally love the film, even if it is a little aimless in places. Perhaps I would like it to be more focused on one thing, but as a fan of the band and the music, it gives a fascinating insight into their world, away from the spin of PR representatives we have today. For any interested in the film, Criterion released an excellent DV and Blu-ray edition of the film that looks superb on both formats and crucially sounds incredible too, with DTS and a DTS HD soundtrack on the Blu-ray. And that's going to be it for this episode of the 24 Framescast. Again, if you want to email me, it's 24framescast at gmail.com and visit the blog at 24framescast.blogspot.com. Um, hopefully I'll be back in about three weeks with a new show. And like I said, let me know what you think. Many thanks.